Gotta excuse the recording. It's very hasty, probably very old, so please listen up. Thank you so much. And uh, you know, and the irony 
of that story actually isn't any of that. The irony is, is that when I was walking to home, the kids that were going to call you junior high, were walking past me, actually didn't think like that was any big deal. It was like just Bobby on another evening, out running around LB. It's just Bobby Schulte. And, um, you know, that's uh, kind of the story of how my drinking went. Um, I was 17, and, you know, I grew up in the youth authority. I grew up in Juvenile Hall. I was kind of already an angry little kid and stealing cars and doing all that crap that we did in the 70s. And uh, in uh, 1980, um, I got myself in a little bit deeper than normal. I was 17 years old. I got tried as an adult. I ended up going off to the joint. And in between my first drink and my last drink, I spent 15 years in prison. And, um, you know, it was... Uh, actually saved my life, frankly. Um, but it was um, just one, one story after another. And I, and I managed to get in trouble when I was inside. I never stayed out of trouble. Um, uh, you know, I'm, I was partying in San Quentin in 1982 and 83. It just it was a kind of a lifestyle that just kept dedicating itself. I, you know, I'd be making Raisin Jack. Um, and, and that lifestyle continued on. I'll tell you about the most important drunk I got on, which was my last drunk. I got paroled from a prison in Crescent City, California in 1992. And um, I can't even really remember if it was January or February, but it was cold. I remember that. And uh, they put you on a bus with a few bucks, and uh, this bus was heading towards San Francisco. And there weren't, I want to say there was two or three of us total on the bus. Somehow between Crescent City, California, and San Francisco, California, uh, I managed to procure a bottle of whiskey, and I managed to get in a fight with the bus driver, and I managed to get kicked off the bus in San Francisco. And um, that was the most important drunk of my life. And I went on that uh, run for the next eight or ten months, and uh, about three months out, and I paroled at about 192. About three months after I paroled, I was down here in San Diego, and I was on a pretty, pretty intense whiskey run, um, not eating a lot of solid food. Uh, but that just kept going through that summer, uh, summer 
ever said that uh, she, she, she hopes that pain happens to you. But on December 1st of 1992, I got to that spot, that critical and comprehensive memorialization. That uh, emotional, spiritual, physical bankruptcy that we talk about, uh, that moment of clarity, if you will. And, um, you know, I shook and I rattled and I rolled and I was on the floor. I was on my knees in the bathroom, not because I was praying, it's because I was puking. And um, I asked God for help. And um, I haven't had a drink since. that happened to me at the time. I, you know, I'm not, I wasn't a religious dude. I'm not, I wasn't a spiritual dude at the time. Uh, I'm not sure I had any um, belief or belief system at that time. But a series of events that took place right after that admission, that 100% total surrender, uh, indicate to me today, in hindsight, that there was a very loving, very powerful God at my side the whole time. What happened was, what came to my mind uh, was I needed help. And, um, and the first thing that came to my mind was call your prayer agent. But I got to tell you, I, I wasn't in the habit of calling the police on anybody else, especially not myself. And uh, my prayer agent was uh, more than happy to see me because she'd been looking for me. I, uh, I don't ever report, report when I was out on parole, so I just heard it and um, basically, uh, we agreed to meet at 44th and Orange, and um, she took me in. At that point in time, they had a, a, a prayer-violated reception yard down in Otay Mesa, and uh, the reception yard wouldn't take me because I was in such bad health. Uh, they took me to Harborview Hospital. I weighed 107 pounds. I had a heart infection. I was jaundiced. I had hepatitis C. Once they, once they admitted me. Uh, so I was basically drinking myself to death. Uh, gates of insanity and death, right? I was on that path. And, um, and no wonder the uh, Department of Corrections wouldn't take me. They were worried I'd die in their care. <laughs> uh, but uh, so anyway, so make a long story short, as I stayed there for about 10 days at the hospital, I finally got back over to, uh, to, to the reception center. Um, I mentioned that I have a little bit of a, I have a big mouth. Did I mention I have a big mouth? I have a big mouth. I have a big mouth. I'm a smart ass. And, um, and I would uh, uh, communicate with officers. Uh, like with your family. Talk about their mothers. The things their sisters and I had done together. Shit like that. Um, so I had a big mouth and I had a little bit of problem in the sense that uh, I heard some shoot turn at the time. So I went back to building 7 and from building 7 to Corcoran. And I got to Corcoran shoe. I was about mm, 45, 50, 60 days dry. Right at that. Somewhere in that area. Somewhere around February 1993. And the last time I had been in that facility, I had gotten in a fight with this particular cop. So he was moving me to one particular unit within uh, the security housing unit called Bedrock. And uh, within that unit, they uh, basically, uh, just to visualize it, it's two cells side-by-side concrete with two cubby holes underneath uh, and a steel door that has holes drilled in it so they can see what you're doing at all times. And uh, underneath one of these cubby holes, um, they were clearing out the cell because they didn't want me to have anything, seriously anything. And underneath 
this one cubby hole where I pulled out a soft rack edition of the big book of Alcoholics Anonymous and looked at it, tossed it to his partner, and his partner said he ain't going to read it and threw it back in. And, uh, and I read it. Didn't have anything else to read for about 45, 50 days. Read it front cover to back cover. Read it more than once. And um, that's how I got introduced to Alcoholics Anonymous. And for me, that was the best way to get introduced to Alcoholics Anonymous because I hear in meetings in a lot of different locations to take your time with the steps, to think through the drink. I hear things that the Big Book of Alcoholics Anonymous tells me can't do. And I hear things that I know I can't do. And somebody told me once when I got there, oh, to the extent that you grasp the power of choice and drink, if you grasp the power of choice the way I have, is to the extent you have to take the steps. Perhaps you need God, perhaps you don't. But what happened for me was in that cell, over that next course of uh, 45, 50, 60 days, isolated by myself, uh, I read the big book of Alcoholics Anonymous, and I identified. I am not going to sit here and tell you I understood the big book of Alcoholics Anonymous. I did not. I still read it today, 23 years later, and learn new stuff. But what I did do in that 45 to 60 day span was I identified, and I can tell you right here, now I am the jaywalker. And for those of you that have not read the text, you will not know what I'm referring to. For those of you that have read the text, I will run in front of a fast-moving trolley car every single time, hoping not to get hit. Every single time. And going through the, that process, um, the next thing that came to my mind was, I might be an alcoholic. These people are describing something that sounds a lot like me as the jaywalker. And uh, so what I did next was... Um, some of you may know this because you've probably been there, but um, the thing is, is to get out of your cell there and go to the law library, it's an event. Um, and you sign up, and then you get on the uh, chain, they call it, with ten other knuckleheads. They all have big mouths. And they take one long chain, and ten or twelve guys, and five-point restraints. And inevitably, someone talks smack, and that person gets tackled. One of them get tackled. So it's, it's sort of a process you sort of get used to, and you're just aware that it's going to happen. But to go to the law library is a, uh, an adventure. And I went to the law library, and I got uh, the yellow pages, and I looked up, I think I looked up the word alcoholism. And um, I came upon a list of recovery homes in Southern California, and I ripped the page out. I don't think anybody else was going to use that page anyways. I ripped that page out, and I, you know, did the things I got to do to get it back to myself. And, uh, and, uh, so, uh, yeah, so I got this list of uh, addresses of places, and I started writing. And I wrote about, um, I think it was like 60 recovery homes in Southern California. This is in 1995. And um, I, uh, I'm sorry, this is in 1993. And uh, I was writing all the uh, recovery homes, and only one returned my letter. And he told me, uh, and, uh, you know, I, I wrote basically that I couldn't 
differentiate the truth from the false. I didn't use those words, but I basically said, I can't remember whether it's the lie I told or the actual truth, but I just can't remember. I'm so full of shit. And um, he told me, write me once again, uh, once a week till you hear from me. And uh, I didn't hear from him again for several years. And I just kept writing. I don't know why I kept writing. I can sit here and tell you now I know why, but I didn't know then why I was writing. And um, I would write my, my little spiel and send it off and send it off. And about nine, ten months later, I was still in the same unit. And about nine or ten months later, I um, maybe it was even a year later because it was around March Madness, uh, I had gambled away my stamps, which come few and far between. I don't think Syracuse covered the spread. But uh, it was uh, like 1994 or something like that, and um, I got a letter back because I didn't sign it, and it said, uh, hey, I didn't get a letter from you this week. I need to know you're doing the right thing. And I didn't know it until much later, uh, but this guy had been reading my letters at the recovery home that he worked at. And he was using those letters to hold the guys hostage by saying, Listen, this is a guy who wants your seat here. <laughs> right? This is a guy who's really willing. I bet he would trade places with you. So if you want to get out of here, get now. But, um, you know, when I got out, um, I got out in June of 96. I spent about three years in there. Um, and, uh, and I was in the security unit the whole time. I'm not saying I would or would not have or would have. I don't really know, but I didn't really have access. For those of you who have been in those facilities, you kind of get it. But um, I didn't have access to anything in there that per se I could have got loaded on. So I had, at least when I got out, I hadn't had any drinks or drugs. And uh, I came right out here, and I got introduced to the Big Book of Alcoholics Anonymous formally uh, at Pathfinder's 1 o'clock meeting on 30th and Cedar. And uh, at that meeting, um, I started to understand more about my condition, the true nature of my condition. And I'm tired of alcohol. And what that means to me today is I'm going to drink again. That's what that means. It's not really complicated. It means I'm 100% without any power, and that means I'm going to drink again, for sure. And, um, you know, we talk a lot about the, you know, you don't have to take the steps perfectly, but uh, for me, you have to take the first step perfectly. That's the only step you have to take perfectly. I have not done the steps perfectly, but I can tell you today, 23 years later, that I've taken the first step 100%. And I know that many, well, I see a lot of guys that come in, and if you have a lurking notion or reservation of any kind, you can be 99.9% convinced that that 0.01% will get you drunk 100% of the time. 100% of the time. And um, there's no way in the big book of Alcoholics Anonymous where it tells you how to take the first step. There's a discussion on the person second step all the way up to the first 60 or so pages until the end of the steps where it says uh, um, uh, we're at step three after the ABCs it says we're at step three and up to that point it discusses the first and second step but there's no directions yet you take the first step by drinking whiskey Says, uh, when it says next, we turn and make a decision. Um, I, I had raised my hand uh, on December 1st of 1992, convinced 100% that I was going to die a drug addicted shootout death at the San Diego Police Department. I knew it. And, um, and I never looked back. And um, 
go. We're not going to say, hey, well, I'm not sure yet I'm ready to come in out of this water. Unless you have a reservation of some kind, you can still swim. And that's the bottom line. And, uh, and what happened for me was right after that, I, I did a fifth step, which meant I had to sit across from another human being and read and talk about these things that I thought were so big in my life that really weren't. But I had to read this fifth step and get completely honest for once in my life with someone else. And admittedly to this day, when I write down the areas of the cause in my resentment list, I still do not know for 100% certain that all of those were actual truths. I recall them to be the truth, but in the first letter that I wrote to the, uh, the recovery home, I'm not sure if I was recalling the truth of the story I made up to cover up the truth. But I wrote it down. If I had any question, if I had to think about a name, I put it down. If you have to think about it, write it. And I did that. And then I read it off to someone. And after the fifth step, the, you know, after I read it, the person told me, I want you to take the book and go home quietly for an hour. And in the book, that's what it says. You read that, it says you take this book off your shelf and you sit quietly for one hour. Not 43 minutes, not two days, one hour. And I literally followed it that precisely. I sat quietly for an hour and I reviewed the first five proposals. And they used terms like, had you mixed mortar without sand? And are the stones properly in place? And if you haven't read the text, you know what I mean again, but they were talking about the keystone and the cornerstone and the foundation. With the foundation properly in place, you can't go through a spiritual set of exercises based on a lie. And um, when I concluded that hour, on 6 and 7. I was through with them. It talks about, you read through that, 6 and 7. And I came out with the idea that I was on step 8 and I needed to create a list. And I had asked God to remove some shortcomings. But that doesn't, it's not a huge process. We become willing and we ask God for help. And I had a list of people that were on my resentment list. That's already a partial list of people I had amends to. So I had this list, and um, I looked at the list, and uh, it says that we have to follow it up with a little bit of action and make direct amends to set people wherever possible. Would, uh... Now, I hear this. <laughs> I even might have believed it for one second in AA myself. But it says, uh, when to do so would injure them or others. I am not others. I am not others in that sentence. And there are plenty of instances throughout the discussion in the ninth step that I come to the conclusion of that because it says we do this no matter what the personal consequences may be. And um, I had done, uh, I had uh, committed a lot of crimes in the city. Um, I had uh, a series of uh, what I call the faceless and the nameless. I could never identify that I'd harmed. And uh, I wasn't exempt from making amends. I couldn't make direct amends, but I wasn't exempt from making amends. And, um, you know, I found ways to make amends to the, my community. I found ways to make amends to the nameless and the faceless. And I made direct amends to the people that were on my list. And um, some of those were uh, pretty complicated. Some of those were pretty complicated. Um, 
through that process. You know, I remember one summer I, um, I had a really crappy job and a really crappy car, although I had a car. And um, I was whining to someone about making amends and saying I didn't have any money to make amends, and I was making about 500 bucks a month, and he told me, we got 500 bucks. Because you live in a flop house, and you basically get free room and board, and you get free food, why can't that whole 500 bucks go to your amends? that simple. It really was. So I didn't, uh, I'm not sitting here and telling you I went and followed that exact advice. But what I did was I did, I did look at how much money I was taking in and I could, could make some uh, payments. Now I had uh, some credit card debt that didn't belong to me or somebody else's credit cards. I mean the debt belonged to me, but they weren't on my name. You understand what I'm saying. And, uh, and so I, I, I remember having this, by the way, I don't recommend starting your amends this way. But I'm going to tell you the story to show you what happened to me. I, uh, I called Visa or MasterCard or somebody, and there was like 3300 bucks in debt on this one credit card. And uh, I, I told the lady, hey, look, um, I'm trying to, you know, all high and mighty because I'm sober. Like, the, she cares. And, uh, you know, just doing what I'm supposed to do that every other person does normally. <laughs> If, uh, you know, I could, I'm trying to make the best deal I can. You know, it talks about in the big book, you know, we don't leave with the chin. We sort of make the best deal we can. But it also tells us not to avoid it. We have to make these uh, uh, reparations, if you will. So um, I'm telling her I'm going into this song and dance that I can give her 35 bucks a month. That's you know, what, what I'm trying to do. And uh, she says, well, that's 3300 bucks. And I'm like, well, I can only afford to pay you 35 she was like, I live just soon. And I'm like, what the fuck are you going to do in the last? the last 15 years in prison. Correct. Don't do that. Don't do that. So I'm all, my blood pressure's 320 over 240. I'm, you know, storming around, screaming, throwing the big book around, you know, in this very calm recovery home. And, uh, you know, like 10 minutes go by, 15 minutes go by, and I got to get back on the phone. And I'm just crossing my fingers I don't get the same lady. I didn't, but, you know, the second time through, I, I, I toned it down a bit, and I just said, look, I'm just trying to make the amends to you guys. I need to pay 35 bucks. That's all I got. Is there some way we can work a deal? And after about six supervisors and a couple of managers, we got to a point where I could send them 35 bucks a month. And that's what, that's what started for me. And I don't know in what world they thought it was uh, appropriate, but, like, I got a new credit card in my own name, like, three or four days later. And uh, I'm just like, because I had started making payments on bad debt. Um, but the, the, the story really is, the point is, is that as I took more action, more things happened favorably to me. And as I paid off more and more of those debts, I got better jobs. I got different, you know, things just opened up. And, and I, I'm going to tell you, I think it's a direct result from me taking the 12 steps and me going through that amends process. I stole a bunch of shit, man, in the 70s from homes in La Jolla, mission homes. There's no way I could ever repay those people. And I went to
to my parole agent and I talked to them about how was I going to go back to those folks. And, you know, they didn't want me just knocking on people's doors. Hey, you know, here I am. And, you know, <laughs> someone's got a hand there or something. But, uh, you know, we talked about how, how am I going to make those amends to those people. And uh, with the help, actually, of my parole agent, we crafted a way to do that. And as each and every one of those things got checked off a little further along the line, and I bought a house. I uh, paid off the debt. I went to college. Uh, I was 30 some odd years old when I went to college. I worked two jobs. I went to college at night. I had a truck that had 410,000 miles on it, and I just hustled. But it, at every point, I kept taking care of those amends. And uh, it took me a while, and I just every time I get another one paid off or another one got closed, it seemed like something better would happen in my life. If I look back on that now, I'm not going to say and sit here and tell you that's coincidence. It's just not. It's a direct result of the action that's required in these steps. And um, and I haven't done them perfect. You know, I waited three years to approach my family because I was afraid that I wasn't going to stay out. I was afraid that I wouldn't stay out and, and be able to make that amends wholeheartedly. So I waited. But when I got married, my mother was at my wedding. Spoke to my mother in 18 years. 18 years. And um, you know, so the things that happen, you know, when I when I start when you start the ninth step, it says, um, you know, uh, it talks about the tenth step. Continue to take personal inventory, and it was wrong, promptly admitted it. Once you've taken the first ninth step, amend, we move into the tenth step. We still do the ninth step. We continue to take personal inventory. We continue to take the ninth step. We start on the tenth step, which is daily inventory, and in that step, it has the most awesome promise in the big book. I hear all the promises in a lot of areas, but I hardly ever hear this one. It says, we have entered the world of the Spirit. And, um, and we promptly clean up, uh, whenever, uh, like, like for me, promptly, uh, back then, maybe one, two days. It shifts over time. As you continue to take the steps and you continue to progress, the, the promptly admitted it portion gets quicker. Uh, I mean, I could stay on it for 10, 14, 16, 18 days, uh, 15, 17, 18 years ago. I can't do that now. It just bothers me too quickly. But, um, but uh, you know, it's, it talks about it in the big book, and it talks about the things we need to do. It gives us clear-cut directions. I started doing, uh, after the ninth, tenth step, I started doing meditation. But I was probably six or seven years in before I could sit still enough to be quiet long enough. Um, maybe for just five, ten minutes, max. It it's still today really hard for me to shut it off. But, um, and it took practice, and I would just go out in my backyard, and I'd sit there with a cup of coffee around 2 o'clock in the afternoon every day. Maybe 2 or 3, I'd be done. So it was 2 or 5. Pretty soon it was 2.15. And I just learned how to quiet the mind. So tune out the chaos. Um, it hasn't been all uh, peaches and cream. the hep C issue, and um, as some of my 
friends here tonight know, uh, the treatment for that has some pretty brutal side effects. Uh, for some folks, the side effects, uh, you know, they, they warned my wife and I that uh, the majority of people have these depressed, sort of suicidal type thoughts. And then they, they kind of asterisk, small print, says, and then there's a few folks that uh, get really angry. Not suicidal. And uh, that was a tough year in my household. And it was a tough year in AA. And in fact, it took a toll for two or three years on me. Because in that year, in 2005, I alienated everyone. I hated you. I hated AA. Uh, I hated my family. And I did not have any idea how to cope with the level of anger I had brewing deep inside me. And I, I don't mean anger that is, you know, you just scream at your dog type anger. shocked at myself for doing um, that I hadn't done in years. You know, I grabbed some dude by the throat because he cut me off a line at a deli when I was 13 or so. And uh, I mean, the whole the deli cleared out. But, um, you know, there was, um, yeah, so it took a while. And I alienated a lot of people during that time. I was a speaker during that time. <laughs> uh, I remember I was a speaker that time at a Tuesday night meeting in uh, Golden Hills. And um, that's what I told people. I hate you. I'm not really uh, an example of Alcoholics Anonymous right now. I haven't been for several years. Um, I kind of called myself out. And, uh, and that was the turning point, actually. There was a kid in the house at that time who's, who's probably a, close to a decade sober now, um, maybe more. He came up to me afterwards and said um, he really appreciated me just telling the truth. And, um, and I didn't realize how affected I had been, actually, until that night. And um, it took, um, you know, I actually sought outside help for that. Outside help. I grew up in a world of violence, and I, I just probably never had dealt with it. You know, it's just kind of maybe if you want to call it a pink cloud the first seven or eight years, but um, it came crashing down at that time. And um, you know, I didn't drink. That's the long and short of it. I didn't drink, and I um, I addressed the issues in and out of these rooms. I got back into the room when I was about 15 sober. I mean, I never stopped going to meetings. Don't get me wrong. I was just mad. <laughs> and I was scowling at you in the meeting and flipping you off and whatever else I was doing. I was just mad. And, um, you know, the thing is, is that, but, so, but I, was, I was there in body only. And um, after that couple-year period, uh, you know, I just sort of got back in and I started reaching back out and I started getting back involved and I started talking to people again. And, um, you know, it's, uh, that was um, 10 years ago now. So things have gotten different again, and things have changed. And um, I worked through that um, with the help of friends and people and the tolerance of the folks in this room. And you guys tolerated me during that period when I was raving lunatic. But, so if you're here new and you, and you think it's going to be peaches and cream the whole time, it, it may not be. Maybe it is for you. But for me, there were some bumps in the road. And um, today I have a kick-ass life. I can't even tell you. I, I mean, if I sat here and told you about my life today, you'd think I was full of it. As for the most of us. Um, I have uh, uh, a few things that I only dreamed 
you're doing. But most importantly, I'm super comfortable with me and who I am. I'm super comfortable with the things I've done. It says we won't regret uh, close the door on the past. You know, we won't regret it and we'll shut the door on it. And um, I don't. You know, I know that the reason why I'm here today and I know that the past that I have today is my story and it's my experience and it's part of the experience that I can share with folks. Uh, it has never hindered me. I used to say when I first got out, nobody will ever hire me because of my background. Ever, I'm never going to get anywhere. And it's just not true. It's just not true. None of that stuff matters. It just doesn't matter. You put one step in front of the other and you just kind of go about the day and do the things you have to do. And if you're doing them honorably, people will see that. And you don't have to worry about all that stuff. I, uh, I mean, I, none of that stuff has come back to bite me uh, in many, many, many years. Um, in the 12th step, having had a spiritual awakening as a result of these steps, to carry this message, this message that the 12 steps refers a way out upon which we all can absolutely agree. This message to alcoholics and practice these principles in all our affairs. And the second half of the 12 steps is the most difficult part for alcoholics because that's the chapter for the wives, for the employers, the family afterward. That's the part we don't ever read because it doesn't pertain to us. That's the rest of the world. That is the rest of the world. It's not just here in AA. I can I can you know, shake your hand and be a nice guy in AA, and I can dump ashtrays and you know pour coffee and do all that thing. But when I leave this room and I go to work tomorrow morning, when I leave this room and I come home to my family, when I leave this room and I deal with my wife, that's where AA matters now. In all our affairs. It matters here in this room, but it talks about being a maximum service to God and our fellows. It doesn't talk about being a maximum service to God and our fellows in AA. It says everywhere, and that's the hardest part, because we're selfish creatures. At least I am. I'm a selfish creature. But uh, I have learned that, and I have gotten really good at that. And I have incredible friendships and bonds today that are only imaginable in the world where I was drinking. Only imaginable. And it's because I've learned to take what I was taught here in Alcoholics Anonymous and apply it in my work life and behave that way in my work life. And apply it in my family life and behave that way. And I have people that actually look up to me now.